Well, I have my strong coffee. I hope you have yours. This morning, I wanted to spend some time with an exercise in Bible interpretation. There's a famously terrible story in the Bible in which King David forces himself onto a woman named Bathsheba. When she becomes pregnant, David has her husband Uriah killed and then takes her as his own wife. Now, this is a pretty big blow to the story of David. Up to this point, he has been ostensibly a hero and a good king. And if you grew up going to Sunday school or VBS or church camp or any of those things, David was a hero. I can't count the amount of times I have heard someone say he was, quote-unquote, a man after God's own heart, even though that was said one time at the very beginning of his, of his life. But nevertheless, um, he's a hero to many of us, and so what happens is we feel the need, this terrible, awful need, to fix the story, to, to vindicate our hero. But that creates a problem, doesn't it? Because if we bring that interpretive motivation, I need to find a way to make David okay, haven't we already decided not to listen to the Bible? Because the Bible might not want to vindicate him. The Bible might want to let this guilt just sit. And I actually think that's probably closer to the truth. But plenty of interpreters have disagreed with me. There is a rich interpretive tradition, in fact, of blaming Bathsheba. She was bathing on the roof. The king could see her. She was a a temptress, a seductress. Or, at the very least, she was immodest. And we can get a modesty sermon out of it. (laughs) Luckily, those days are mostly gone, and rarely do I hear such ridiculous evasions. Instead, I hear a new interpretive line. Not so much new. I've actually heard it for many, many years, but it's the one I hear most often, and it comes from the opening of that chapter. The very first line about this sequence begins this way. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and with the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites. They besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And here comes the first point of the sermon. (laughs) The interpretation is obvious. We've moved past blaming the victim, thank God, and now we're in the moment of blaming David, which is far better. David should have been off with his men. A king leads his men to battle. This is literally a quote I heard from a preacher over the weekend. Which is untrue, obviously. Kings do not lead their armies into battle. They're safely behind enemy, behind the lines so that the enemy can't hurt them. But, but I take his point. If David was with his men, obviously the whole situation would not have transpired. But that's a really obvious statement. Is the Bible just trying to be that obvious? I, 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 again, I hope that you see the prior line of interpretive commitment, a prior belief, a prior, a prior uh, bias, that this line is speaking positively about the act of David going off to war. It's saying that David should have been with his men. David should have been busy about war. But hang on for a second. Before we go there, we need to take a look at what all of Samuel says about kings and about war. So by 2 Samuel 11, where Bathsheba and this whole situation takes place, we probably have forgotten 1 Samuel 8, way back at the beginning, in which the people want their first king. 
And you might remember Samuel, the prophet and priest, was very angry about the situation. But God says, no, it's fine. If they want a king, let them have one. But I have a word about what will be created because of it. And so Samuel gives the people a prophetic word. And he says this. He says, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and he will make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Samuel then enumerates what the king will say is his. And the first thing a king wants is an army. He enumerates a bunch of other things, uh, daughters for wives and concubines, land, taxes, all of, all of that stuff. But here we see specifically Samuel says he's going to want an army. And when he concludes that prophetic warning, he says this, When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. And that is a terrifying line. <laughs> that is a serious line. That is not an endorsement, <laughs> to put it mildly. And in fact, the Bible actually gets even more explicit. David gets it into his head later in life that since Israel now has a unified nation and a very strong monarchy, it needs a magnificent temple. You can see David mimicking the empires around him. How can you have an empire with an awesome throne room and an amazing king and a, and a wonderful capital without a beautiful temple to set it up right and God doesn't seem to have this in mind himself. He's never complained about the tent. But when the insistence of a temple comes, much like the insistence on the, of having a king, God relents. But he doesn't let David build it. David says this to his son Solomon about building the temple. He says this, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But... God said to him, You have shed much blood, have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. David says outright, point blank, I do not get to build God's holy temple because my hands are bloody so now heading back into that opening line from David and Bathsheba where it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, we have the question, how should we read that line? Should we read it positively as though David should have been off with the kings in war at spring? Or should we read it more negatively, more as a parody, more as demonstrating the entire brokenness that is now seeped into David and Israel. Because it seems sort of weird, isn't it? The weather got nice. <laughs> so the kings pull the men from their farms and businesses and families, and they all go to war. That's not good news. If you've got families or a business or a farm, you know that is not good news. The Bible isn't clapping these kings on the back. It isn't saying, David, you fool, get out there and kill more people. Not enough blood on your hands. That line about springtime war is neutral, and we decide, based on the other portions of Samuel, how we're going to read that text. But if you come thinking already God is super on board with David's bloodiness, you're going to read it positively. 
and you are also going to have to ignore those other texts I read. And this is why interpretation is so very tricky, because it isn't just located in the one line that you read. It's located within the entire corpus of the letter or the book or the poem or whatever it is. It's not just in that cherry-picked line. And so that brings up two important lessons. First, notice that we often interpret neutral lines as either positive or negative, and this is our decision. And we will tend to do that based on what we already think or feel. Usually, we don't even know we're doing it. We're bringing our own unobserved biases to the text. This creates the need for the second lesson. And that is, we need to recognize a neutral line for what it is, and then make the cognizant decision to choose either a positive or negative, or maybe something I haven't even thought of, based on the entire book, all of First and Second Samuel, and then, of course, through the lens of the whole Bible, particularly through the lens of Jesus by doing this, we're able to gently correct this text, which is being mildly abused by people, because it shows perfectly the brokenness demonstrated through the entire chapter, and it begins with the corruption that power and privilege bring. And if you take something from this story, I pray that you take something other than the vindication of David away, because this is not about the vindication of David. This is about the victimization of Bathsheba and Uriah. Uriah, the one who was called a Hittite, meaning he wasn't from Israel. Uriah, who was brought into the family of God. Uriah, who had a place. Uriah, who acts with such honor throughout the entire story, showing David himself up. And yet... Even here, the righteous man after God's own heart kills the foreigner. This is a story of brokenness. And like a good Christian, I don't find a happy ending for it until I get to Jesus. Because it is in Jesus, in his life and his death and in his resurrection, that Uriah will receive his vindication, and Bathsheba, Bathsheba will get her day to say, I didn't want that. And there will be an answering for even the most heroic Bible character. And that's a powerful lesson for all of us to hold on to and to take seriously and to use it in such a way that we are capable now of hearing even better the cries of the victim, because that is what this story is about. Peace and strong coffee.